Welcome to Old Walls House. It's your main man and host, Old Walls. Back this week for a fun episode, guys. This one's going to be a little different. You know, Slow Sports Week, and it timed up perfectly, had a really fun interview with K.W. Zachary and Sarah Peterson. They are the authors of the book, The Lone Star Speaks. It's a fun book about the Kennedy assassination, all that kind of stuff. So uh, this was a really fun interview. It's going to be something kind of different for us. Like I said, everything else has been pretty much mainly sports-based, and this actually timed up so perfect. There wasn't a whole lot going on in the sports world. So I, I really had a great time with this interview. I hope to do more stuff like this down the road. But before we get too far into that, let's touch on that housekeeping, guys. And, and and thank you so much for everything. Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate that. If you could, please like, comment, rate, subscribe, do all that good stuff. It's a, it's a boost for the show. Uh, also, there is a support feature that you could find when you go to Spotify, Apple. There's a link down under there. Do I actually have a couple of supporters? It allows you to uh, basically support the show and, you know, donate or give what you see fit. I think you can give in uh, increments of $1, $5, or $10. I'm not asking you guys to do that at all. I'm just putting it out there. If you feel like it's worth it, I'm going to take anything I make off this and put it back into the show and, you know, work on getting more and more technology stuff like that. I'm a moron with that, but any any bit could help. So I appreciate you guys all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Like I said, we'll be speaking with KW Zachary and Sarah Peterson on this show about their book. We got to cover some golf. There's a quick sports update and then my passing thoughts. So without much further ado, let's go to KW Zachary and Sarah Peterson. Joining me now, we have the authors of The Lone Star Speaks, Untold Texas Stories About the JFK Assassination, Sarah Peterson and KW Zachary. Sarah and KW, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having us today. Yes, Jordan. So I started reading your guys' book a couple days ago. I haven't been able to get all the way through it, unfortunately. But I am, I am so intrigued about the whole premise of you guys finding all these different people to talk to. And I'm very intrigued about the premise of the JFK assassination and the thought of cover-up and conspiracy theory. Why don't we just start with what led you guys down the path of researching this JFK assassination, and then what led you to writing a book about it? Well, in college, I um, I was a political science and history major, and when we did our senior thesis, it had to be on something from the 1960s. So I uh, presented that I wanted to do it on the Kennedy assassination and the department chair of poli-sci at that time told me I couldn't do that. Well, the next item that I was interested in was the Tonkin Gulf crisis, presented that thought to her and she told me, no, absolutely, I could not do it on that. So because I was a double major, I went to the history department chair and I said to Dr. Hogan, I would like to do it on the Kennedy assassination. And he asked me my thoughts on that. And I told him, and he said, go for it, Sarah. So I did. 
Well, it was time for me to present because then at the end, of, it was a year-long project. I stood up. I presented my research, and you could hear a pin drop. I asked her questions. There were no questions, and I started walking back to my seat, and all of a sudden, the department chair of poli stood up and said, you're going to let this little girl accuse the president and I didn't hear any more. It was like I was on some Charlie Brown uh, <laughs> cartoon, and all I heard was wah, 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 wah. <laughs> so I kind of went back to my chair, shrunk down, and I didn't hear the rest of it. And so years later, when Katana and I started talking about the Kennedy assassination, and she asked me who the department chair was, I could not remember. It was like, you know, that dream everyone has from college that your dream is, it is finals and you never attended class. Oh, no, that wasn't my nightmare of college. My nightmare was this professor. <laughs> I had to call my college and tell them the year I graduated to find out who this professor was. And when I did... They kind of laughed at me, the new department chair, and said, well, didn't you know she worked for the Rand Corporation no. under Johnson? And it was like, holy moly, no, I did not know that. Can you just so, explain real quickly what the Rand Corporation is? They were supposedly a think tank. But during this time, they did a lot of work for intelligence and CIA. So, of course, she wouldn't like me to open the closets on some of the ghosts from the 1960s. And it, it, uh, I found out uh, she didn't retire. She is now working at the University of Chicago. So, um, and I thought, well, that's interesting, Chicago... We haven't sent her a copy of the book either. <laughs> so that was my introduction to researching about the Kennedy assassination. Now, mine started years before because I was 11 when Kennedy was killed, and I was lucky enough that my uh, grandparents lived in Dallas. My step-grandfather was one of the Dallas oil men, and so he never, and I thought about this later, how strange this was, he never spoke about the assassination, although he, he made it very clear he was voting for Nixon. My grandmother had broken her knee. He put her in a wheelchair, wheeled her up to the pole. It didn't <laughs> matter how much pain she was in. By God, she was voting for Nixon. And uh, it seemed odd later that he didn't ever comment, but he didn't. But my grandmother saved all the newspapers from Dallas, Fort Worth, the area which I got to look at. And I know on the day of the assassination, we lived in El Paso, which is at the Mexico border, literally, of Texas. And my mother called my grandmother and said, what on earth is going on in Dallas? We're hearing all these reports of the president being shot. And my grandmother said, you know, remember, there's no cell phones. This is 1230. All the businessmen have left their offices to go eat lunch. And she said, all I can tell you is 
the wives of the oil men are calling each other frantically saying, do you know where your husband is? And she said part of that was facetious because they'd heard them make so many remarks about how angry they were with Kennedy. And part of it was half serious that maybe one of them had decided to go off during his lunch, take his hunting rifle with him down town and just take care of this matter. So anyway, thanks to having all those newspapers, I began to realize, even as an 11-year-old, particularly after Jack Ruby just uh, shoots Oswald right in front of everybody, that there was something odd about this whole situation. Yeah, and just to take a quick aside, I mean, the thing that I learned very quickly in reading your book was I was I, it was always ingrained in my mind that Oswald killed Kennedy. And you guys make uh, a point in your foreword that he was never tried and he is innocent until proven guilty. And just the weirdness of the whole thing that that's been ingrained in, you know, every young student that goes through school that Oswald killed Kennedy. And like you said, he was never able to stand trial for it. We have an innocent until proven guilty in this country. So just as you said, I was going to save that till later, but you said the oddness of the whole the whole situation has kind of permeated itself into how it's received even till this day. Correct. Correct. And occasionally you will see that it says alleged assassin. But there are too many history books where they leave out the word alleged. And you're right. The young people that we work with here in the college, all they know is the word Oswald. And as far as they're concerned, he killed Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so what led you guys getting together and and writing the book? So Katana and I worked together in the reading and writing tutoring center. And one day I was reading a book on uh, Rhea 51, and it was on the 40th, 49th anniversary, and Katana came in, and we were talking about the author of that book, and we started talking about, you know, we're now going into the year starting for the 50th, and that there is a historical symposium here at our college, and we thought, well, let's pull our resources and write a paper for the uh, historical symposium here. But we wanted to do it differently. We're both educators. We wanted to use primary sources. We wanted to hunt down individuals who had never come forward before, or if perhaps they had, they still had information they hadn't shared with others for reasons of maybe they were scared or someone uh, interviewing them hadn't asked the right questions. Or, you know, Katana and I are, are ladies and we can appear to be less threatening than other investigators. And when it comes to the Dixie Mafia, hey, we take them brownies to break the <laughs> ice. So that's how it started. And so we we did a lot of reading, but we started our project as having no predetermined outcome. 
we wanted the evidence to lead us, not us lead the evidence. And uh, Jordan men were particularly welcoming. Uh, I guess mainly because, like Sarah said, we were not threatening. We did show up with these wonderful homemade brownies. <laughs> and it was their wives who would later say, you shouldn't have told them all that. Well, it was too late. They already had. <laughs> <laughs> it was the wives that wanted to prevent them from talking to <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Once they got up. Once they got a mouthful of brownies, they just talk and talk and talk. Yeah, as a man who can sometimes talk too much, I can. Uh, that makes a whole lot of sense. I understand that. And and yeah, I think one of the really cool things about your book is all the different chapters, and not all of them, but a lot of them are titled, you know, the voice of so and so, and kind of tell us the story, like their little piece of the story of whether it's the day of the assassination their connection to uh, Lyndon Johnson, for example, or Kennedy, or, or somebody else that could or could not have been involved. I was very intrigued by that by that path you took and how you put this together. How'd you guys kind of decide to do that? I mean, it's a little unique in the way you set up the, the structure of the book. Well, we call these witnesses our voices. And so it is, we're speaking for them in the chapter. This is their story. And we didn't, um, we wanted to make sure that readers understood this was their story and that we were telling their story to get it out there because they had kept it in so long for whatever reason. Many of them had been scared. Many of them felt like their days were numbered, and they needed to get this information out there because it filled in different pieces of this gigantic jigsaw puzzle. So sometimes when we would tell someone have you, or ask them, have you ever told this before? And they'd say, no, either I was scared or no one ever asked me that question. We would say, do you happen to know that there is someone else that we have already talked to verifies your story and they would all be going no I thought I was the only person that knew this and so we'd say well we've already talked to someone who saw what you saw from a different angle or a different area of the street but you didn't dream what you saw someone else saw it too and so a great many of them were thrilled that somebody was going to preserve these stories because let's face it a lot of these people have already passed away Lots of them, most of them are quite elderly by now. And we want, you know, and they're verifying another witness's story just to us was unbelievable because after they tell us our, their story, we would go and we would look in archives. We would look in other researchers' information just to make sure we could verify things they told us. And then when another witness could verify it, oh my gosh, that was just amazing. Yeah, I would have to imagine how, how fun or, you know, fun's probably the right, maybe not the right word, but how it must have felt when you were, were putting together the pieces. Like you said, the jigsaw puzzle is a great, great uh, way to describe this because as I'm reading the book and it's like, 
oh man, there's a million different things happening. And like I said, I'm only about a quarter to a third of the way through the book so far. It's like, wow, this is a lot to put together. It must have been really interesting to see all the pieces starting to get put together and be able to connect the dots. That must have been satisfying. It's probably the right word to, to know that you guys were you were got, you guys were on the right track and really tracking down correct people and getting them to to share with you their their side of the story. Well, I think the word fun is okay in most instances. Now, we had a few instances where someone would say something that literally made the hair stand up on our arms or our eyes probably got bigger than they should have been. But most of the people really were more than willing to talk. And there weren't but a few that really made us come home looking over our shoulders to make sure nobody was following us. <laughs> And, and and as you kind of go to that, making you look over your shoulder, did you guys face any pushback? I know you said there were some some wives and maybe some other people that you went to interview that weren't as forthcoming as you might have hoped. But did you get any pushback from other people you work with uh, when you guys went to publishers to get this book published? Did you face any pushback about the topic and, and the context of what you guys were writing? Well, let's face it, not everyone in every history department is thrilled at the idea of something just exactly like Sarah uh, experienced in California. Even in Texas, there are people who do not want you to talk about Lyndon Johnson. Uh, there are people who don't want Dallas blamed for Kennedy being killed. So, yeah, we had some, one man would never, never negated what we said. But when we asked him about what he had done that day inside the school book depository, he was an FBI agent, all he would say is, I will not talk about that. And yet he didn't say that didn't happen. He simply said, I'm not going to talk about it. So there, there were some that were very hesitant and others that were very willing, you know, more willing than hesitant, I would think. And coming from Midland, Texas, we, Katana and I were going to the 50th anniversary of Lancer, the conference in Dallas. And we planned to write an article for the Midland paper and the Odessa paper. And we had contacted someone that I knew personally at the Midland paper. She thought it was an excellent idea and two weeks later, she called and said, no, you can't write that article for us. And it, it's just like doors in this area slam in our face when we want to either talk or just produce an article about the assassination. And I think you'll understand that, Jordan, when you get to the chapters called the West Texas Connection. Those people do not want that connection publicized. Okay. I mean, I, we don't care if you publicize it. I'm just <laughs> telling you, they don't really want us to. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can only imagine why. Well, we can only imagine why. <laughs> and, and now when you guys went to find uh, a publisher to publish your book, were were they willing? Did you guys really have to work to get them convinced to do it? Was it an easy sell? Did, did you get any pushback in that front? We, we were so fantastically lucky. We picked out Bancroft Press, 
because we like their slogan. We print what we like. We publish what we like. We said, hey, we like that idea. They, that's the first place we sent the book. And in no time at all, we got a positive reply that said, we want to publish your book. Now, we'll be the first to say, don't expect that to happen because we still can't believe it did. But, <laughs> but we were so lucky in that respect. Yeah, you hear horror stories of people trying to get books published and they went to, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 different places to try and get it published. So, yeah, and I, I see why they, they jumped at the opportunity because, like I said, I'm enthralled with what I've read so far and the different aspects of things you don't even consider. I mean, you talk about, for example, you talk about uh, a, a gentleman at the Dallas Morning News and how he spotted a, a random spot of blood on a sidewalk and, and just things you would never yeah. oh, have thought not. of. Well, how we wrote the book is pretty much an easy read. It's not dry. It's not boring. It, it has a lot of technical information in there, but it's wrapped inside their story. And I think that is what intrigues people and what sets our book aside from other books out there. Because they're going to learn about all these people. After one chapter, they can close the book. They can think about what they've just read and said, I can't believe these ladies are still alive. <laughs> and then they can either reread that chapter or go on to the next. And they're not losing anything. You can skip around in the book and not lose anything and then go back and pick up in another chapter. And we were surprised as we gathered research information and interviewed people with what we thought were going to be standalone chapters. Then we would find someone else who verified what that person had said. And so we could weave it into, well, this wasn't the only person who observed this. Little did he know someone else had seen this also. Or someone else had been threatened with almost exactly the same words that were used with this person. Yeah, and, and another thing, you mentioned the ease of the readability. I, I think you get invested in in the voices, as you guys call them. And, you know, you're reading about, you know, Iris Campbell, for example, and you read about you're invested in her story and you get invested in the story of the person you talked that was speaking before. So it's very interesting and it, it keeps you engaged while reading it. And they move the chapters move quickly, so it does. It never feels like a slog. So I think that's a great part about it. Um, and I just think it was a, a very unique and awesome way to write a book that that gives you so many different perspectives that are never even considered in all the other types of JFK assassination theories I've read. So I, I was very very intrigued and impressed about the way you guys did that. Well, thank you so very much. And that, that's what we were hoping is that people would remember these aren't just depositions. These are human beings who were scared. And you mentioned Iris Campbell. I mean, we felt sorry for her when she told us the night of Kennedy's assassination, she had been sent by Johnson to get to Dallas so she could basically ask, act as a spy mm -hmm. for him. But that she went to bed that night curled up crying. And I don't know, somehow we thought, oh, I guess you really were very fond of Kennedy. And so we said that. And she said, no, I was crying because I knew 
if they could kill the president, they could sure kill me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you forget that these people were personally involved in this. Yeah, like you said, it, it's not a deposition. It, it it makes you feel like yeah, you're you're talking and thinking and reliving this through real people, as opposed to when you read you know the Warren Commission or something like that. It's just a statement and lines on a paper almost. So it, it gives such a a personal connection to to the the instances of what were happening. So I, again, I just I thought that was such a great way for you guys to set this up. So from the time you guys started this project in writing the book, Sarah, you'd spoke about how you've had, you had your own past in researching it and Katana, you, you as well. What, did you have opinions at the start of the project? I know you guys said you wanted to let the facts lead you, but you had to have somewhat of your own opinion. You guys have done a lot of research on this yourselves before this. And what were those opinions and did they change? And if so, how and why? My opinion, though, I was a college student in California. I had never been to Texas, much much alone going to Dallas, Texas. And mine was all through readings and affidavits. And I believed that Johnson and the military-industrial complex and intelligence were the ones that assassinated Kennedy. Well, when Katana and I, uh, before Katana and I got together, I had been, when I moved here, I went to Dealey Plaza and I looked, I spent a lot of time outside looking at angles and windows and where the best shots would come from. And I spent a little time in the book depository, but I mostly spent time on angles. And then when Katana and I got together, To me, it's like I needed to wipe clean what I thought um, from my college days and be a true researcher and start from the beginning, just like, you know, a baby would start on this uh, investigating and research because I didn't want anything from my past, from my early college years to warp what we were going to start together. And besides reading the beginning newspapers, the first official thing I read besides those was the Warren Report. And Jordan, you'll be surprised how many researchers will say, I am never going to read that piece of trash. (laughs) Well, I grant you, it has lots of omissions and errors and out-and-out things that are all often have been altered in it. But how do you try to argue against something if you haven't read the original? So I, I recommend reading it just so you have it. Plus, it also ended up helping us tremendously. For example, there is a witness named Victoria Adams who uh, was on the fourth floor. And right immediately, almost after the assassination, she and a friend ran down the stairs, the same stairs that Oswald was supposed to have run down. And they were rickety old creaky stairs, and they're in high heels, and you can hear the click, click, click as they're running down those stairs. And did they pass anyone? No. Did someone go in front of them? No. Did someone come behind them? No, because their supervisor stood at the door and watched them go down the stairs. But when you read the Warren report, it says Victoria Adams 
got to the first door and passed William Shelley, who was one of the uh, supervisors of the depository, and Billy Lovelady, who was one of the workers. All right, if you look at the time period of when William Shelley and Billy Lovelady should have been in that building, then my first thought was, well, Victoria Adams took longer to get down those stairs than she thought because I knew how long it would have taken William Shelley and Billy Lovelady to run to the picket tents on the grassy knoll and come back. But then, when you start double-checking the information in the Warren report, Victoria Adams never said she saw William Shelley and Billy Lovelady. She said there wasn't one person standing in that hall. And we found the woman that was with her that day and talked to her on the phone, and she agreed with her. She said Billy Lovelady and William Shelley were not in that hall when we entered it. So here's a prime example of someone putting words into a witness's mouth just to change the timeline of how quickly any of that could have gotten down those stairs. Yeah, and you saw that a lot uh, in a couple of different instances, at least that I've come across so far. There was the reporter, and I'm blanking on her name at the moment, but there was a, a a sentence added to her newspaper report that there was only uh, one wound on uh, JFK, and she realized yeah, that was that was Connie Critchburg. Yes, that's it. Correct. And then she realized that she didn't write that, and she went back to her editor, I believe, and said that the FBI added that. So there there just seemed to be so many examples of just blatant changing of stories. You talk in a section about how Hoover would, would be playing games. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, would be playing games with getting information over to the Warren report and how he would, you know, stall sending information. And then since they sent a deadline, he knew he could kind of, you know, send piles and piles of paper that they could never get through at the end. So it almost seems like the Warren report itself, but Many other things were just set up to fail is the feeling I get. I don't know if that's kind of the same feeling you guys got in your research. Well, and when we visited with the Assistant Attorney General of Texas, Robert T. Davis, who was sent by Wagner Carr to sit in the investigation of the Warren Commission, he knew from the moment he walked in there, that Johnson was in control of that investigation. And when he reported back to Wagner Carr, he said, you know, Wagner, it was the biggest whitewash. It was so lackadaisical. Um, the attorneys wouldn't show up. And follow-up questions weren't asked. And people who should have been called to be witnesses were not. Going back to how we started this book, Katana and I believe it is a three-part event. You know, when I was in college, I just thought uh, it was an assassination. It happened. These are the people that, you know, should have been brought down for it. But as you get older and you look at everything, we thought it was a three-part event, the planning of it, the carrying out, and the cover-up. And if Oswald is the one to be blamed, 
he was dead by the time the cover-up started. So you can't just put all the blame on Oswald. Yeah, and the the fact that Oswald is, you know, killed by Jack Ruby within, I believe it's within 36 hours of the assassination. I mean, that's that leads us down the path of, you know, and I wouldn't call myself a conspiracy theorist necessarily, but I'm always intrigued by things. But that leads me down the, you know, for lack of a better term, the conspiracy theory path. It's like, oh, they're eliminating people involved in in the the action and it just everything like that tends to to snowball and like you said there's i like the three parts they planned it they executed it, and then they covered it up and that just seems like that's the first part of the cover-up to me plus conspiracy has a bad name mm-hmm. a conspiracy means uh two or more people involved and there had to be two or more people involved because Oswald wasn't there to cover it up. And one of our very interesting witnesses was there that day in Dealey Plaza. And when we asked him if he thought Oswald did it, the answer was no. But then he looked at us and said, which Oswald are you talking about? I knew them both. Now, I hadn't made it that far. Do you care to elaborate a little bit on that for us? Well, we were about as shocked at first, too. But once he said that, we realized he meant there was more than one person using the name Oswald. Well, we know that if you look at the Hoover records. Right after the assassination, Hoover admitted in a memo that there had been a man down in Mexico uh, using the name Lee Harvey Oswald. And all that sounded great, but that made him even more, you know, suspect. And he must have been a communist and everything. Until they got a picture of the guy, and he looked nothing like Lee Harvey Oswald. So that's at least two people using the name. And then if you study anything of the work that John Armstrong did, and his is a thousand-page book, but it's worth a read, believe me. He realized there are records of at least two young men whose Lives were intertwined, and so were the lives of their mothers. They were both named Marguerite Oswald, but they lived in different places at different times. One was in the Marines, one was in New Orleans. And later on, it was so convoluted and messed up that you can see why the warden report finally threw their hands in the air and said, look, let's stick with one story. We can't handle all of this. Mm -hmm. But yet, there were several people using the name Lee Harvey Oswald. And which one died? Well, that's anyone's guess. This same man that Sarah just mentioned told us, I I met the other Oswald in Houston years later. He was driving a cab. And that was in 1968 is when he saw the other Oswald in Houston. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, and, and with something like that, and because the Warren report was given a deadline, if I'm correct, they were given a deadline yes. of, of sometime in the summer of 1964 to be completed. Like it kind of because of the election. Yeah, it yes. kind of circles back to being it set up to fail. I mean, just how long did it take you guys to put together your book? You you said you started talking originally in 2011, I believe. 
2013. 13, sorry. Six years. Yeah, so you guys took six years to write a book, and they were expected to, to put together a report on it and track down two different people in, you know, the 1960s with no no sense of the technology that we had now. It just... Right. That just smells to, to high heaven like they were set up to fail. Well, and most of the Americans never knew that there were three members on the committee, including Richard Russell, who did not agree with this single bullet theory. They didn't believe one bullet had hit Kennedy and gone through Conley and done all that damage. And they thought there was going to be a disclaimer written, published in the book saying they didn't agree with that. Well, you know, Lyndon Johnson, he promised them that, but he never came through. Yeah, I did. I did. I actually did know that. I don't know if I stumbled in that by accident or if that was the part of the, the book that I jumped to and, and read later on. But, yeah, the the single bullet theory and that's the theory that the same bullet that passed through John F. Kennedy then hit the, the governor of Texas, correct? Yeah. And there was a, a portion of the book where there talks about a gentleman being in the operating room of the governor of Texas hearing, you know, little sh- shards of shrapnel being dropped yeah. into an operating pan, which has been said didn't happen that would have been able to verify if it was the same bullet that went through Kennedy. They could have then verified if it was the same bullet that hit the governor of Texas. So just more and more and more, it leads to just there's, and I don't think I'm giving anything away in the book when I say that I think the overall theme I took from the book, I don't know if this is where you intended it was confusion and so many different things happening that needed time to piece together and it felt like within 12 hours, there was a concise, simple message that was put out. Here's the shooter. He acted alone. One bullet from the depository. Like, it just felt like everything was put out so quickly. And you're like, hang on. How could that happen with all these different moving parts? Well, and another thing to consider, and, and we don't make any bones about this. It doesn't matter to us whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, whether you hated Kennedy, whether you loved him. We don't think the man should have been removed from the presidency with a bullet, with bullets. I neither should any other president. But the point is, there were so many uh, ways that, let's face it, the Kennedy family could have put more pressure on the Warren report. Because at that moment, they had all the sympathy in the world. Mm-hmm. If Jackie Kennedy had said, I'm sorry, but I don't I was there. I, I knew, know there was more than one bullet coming at the same time. I don't believe this. Then they could have pushed for a more thorough investigation. But they didn't. And they had ulterior purposes. They were still in politics. Robert Kennedy wanted to be president someday. And let's face it. You'll get to a part where we talk about some of the secrets that the administration was trying to cover up and replace with the Camelot myth, which is pretty much what happened. But the Camelot myth covered up the truth of what happened to Kennedy, and we're still trying to dig because of that. Yeah, growing up, I went to uh, – I'm not Catholic, but I went to more Catholic school than any non-Catholic in the world probably – I went to a Catholic <laughs> elementary school growing up, 
And the gymnasium was John F. Kennedy Gymnasium. There's a picture of JFK on the wall, obviously the first Catholic president. And, you know, it's kind of another thing that's kind of ingrained in my mind as a young child growing up before I before I start kind of getting my, you know, my conspiracy tinfoil hat on that really none of this turns out to be conspiracy is that the Kennedys were this great all-American family, John F. Kennedy, Jackie, their children. And, you know, even before reading this book, I I knew Kennedy was a a womanizer and he wasn't really this, this picture of health that he was portrayed as, as this young young, vibrant presidential candidate running against an old, gruff Richard Nixon in 1960 when Nixon's only a few years older than him. But you guys highlight it so well in this book that everything about the Kennedy family is a total manufactured image and how that can play in down the line. And I didn't know as much about how Jackie's image was also so manufactured. I Even before I read this book, I still had this view – and she obviously still deserves sympathy. Her husband was murdered, but of this, you know, well-meaning, you know, wife who took care of the kids and you kind of illustrate that, you know, not so much with her as well, but just the whole thing about the whole manufactured element of the Kennedy family. And like you said, they per- they were still protecting the family because of future yep. political aspirations. Well, and you know, one of the things that they insisted that every staff member do before they could work in the uh, White House for them, for signing a confidentiality oath. Well, that makes you think you're entering the military. Mm-hmm. But it was just a matter of you will not write about us. And, of course, a few of those broke them, and nobody sued them. But they took them pretty seriously. And as long as the Kennedys were in the White House, you did not talk about them, whether it was Secret Service, who was having to bring in girlfriends, or people that realized how much money Jackie was spending that no one knew about. But, you know, let's face it, that the press just thought that was none of the public's business. But you have to remember that secrets sometimes allow other people to do things that they shouldn't because you can't stand up to the spotlight that would shine on you because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, if you can't, uh, if you if you're worried about, you know, your own glass house, it makes it hard to to go after others. Right. Very good point. And and we've mentioned this and we touched on it briefly that, you know, a conspiracy we touched on the conspiracy theorist uh, tag label and the JFK assassination is kind of, you know, ground zero, for lack of a better term of, you know, where conspiracy theorists kind of starts in my mind, at least. I mean, maybe there's something else before that 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 really gets it going. But as a kid growing up again, you know, implanted in my mind. Oswald killed Kennedy, single shooter, and it's like anything else. That's a conspiracy theory. They're just coming up with their crazy wackos, the you know the tinfoil hats. Were you guys labeled conspiracy theorists a lot in the process of writing this book, and then since you've published it and talking about it? When we have books done on presentations. There have been a few people that just say, oh, you're just into the conspiracy. Most people are not like that. Most people listen and they follow the evidence 
and they also believe because when we give presentations, we say conspiracy is more than one person involved. And, you know, just like if Oswald did it, he couldn't cover it up. So let's talk about the cover up. Let's talk about who could have planned this. Let's talk about the assassins and remember the mafia and how they work on a need-to-know basis. That is probably how this all went down. The planners had no idea who the assassins were going to be, and they had no idea where the money was going to come from. Plus, those groups had no idea who was going to cover it up. So it's all on a need-to-know basis. You had a job to do. You did that little job, and then you were out of the picture. Whether you were out of the picture and lived, or you were out of the picture and didn't live. And one way we explain it, Jordan, is we'll talk about, let's face it, there are people who are too open-minded. Any news theory that comes out, they jump on the bandwagon. It doesn't matter how ridiculous it is and how much proof there is it couldn't have happened that way. They're a little too open. Then they're the other end of the spectrum where you have people whose minds are so closed that you can't offer enough evidence and pry the minds open. So our book is for the 80% of the public in between mm-hmm. that's open-minded enough to say, you know, we, we know already that everything we've read in the history book from George Washington chopping down the cherry tree is not true. And so we might as well look at our newspapers and realize that we haven't always been told the truth, whether it was through an era or whether it's because someone feels like they have to protect us. But, you know, oddly enough, today is April 14th, the day Abraham Lincoln died. We are still learning things about his death that it's taken this 150-something years to learn. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why won't we still be looking for things from Kennedy? more, you know, 100 years from now. We may. We won't, but somebody may. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of brings me to something I was thinking here. Do you feel that because we're we're so far removed time-wise from the actual event, you know, I, I was, I'm 31 years old. I was not born when it happened, obviously. I have no firsthand knowledge. Um, my father was a, a young, young man. My, my mother was uh, probably about your age, Katana. So no, and she didn't have a lot of, you know, firsthand knowledge and preconceived knowledge to pass to me about it. So I come in with kind of no firsthand knowledge, no memory of it myself. Do you think that helps as we move forward that more and more people are completely removed from the actual event and that they'll be able to look at the the stories, the documents, the testimonies with a completely open mind and kind of see all the facts, as opposed to just the narrow vision of what they were told originally. You make a good point there, Jordan. There was a book, actually, that was published not that long after Kennedy died, but the title was very revealing. It was called Kennedy Without Tears. And that's exactly what we have to reach for, is we can't let the sentimental part of of how much we feel like we lost, even though we did lose a lot. Let's face it. How can you judge someone's administration by less than four years? Mm-hmm. We don't know what he would have done in the next four years if he lived that long. But we do have to be objective enough to say, 
I, no matter what happens, if this is the way it happened, everyone needs to know. We need to quit letting sentiment and uh, the idea that I don't want this to be the way the government is. One woman told me, I don't want to hear about that. My government, I don't want to think my government would do something like that. Mm-hmm. And I said, but what if it did? Don't you want to be prepared for that? And then there are those who we, we talk to them at book signings and they're, they don't care about past history. They said they weren't, they say to us, well, we weren't alive then. It doesn't matter to us. Well, it does. When I approach the students here and I give them a presentation on how to do research, I tell them to look for a passion in your life and write on that passion and investigate and research. And then I go into the a spiel about the different guns found in Dealey Plaza that day. And it starts a spark in their brain on how interesting this Kennedy assassination is. And they go immediately to the library and they start researching on the Kennedy assassination. So you have these 18 to 22 year olds after you give them a presentation on researching that are really enthused about this subject to people maybe in their 40s walking and coming up to us at a book signing saying, oh, I don't care about that. That's old history. But it's not. History repeats itself. And we need to make sure whatever we learn from this assassination that this does not happen again. And one time when someone was saying something about well, I just can't believe that any government would ever get rid of its own leader. And we said, well, have you ever read Julius Caesar? <laughs> right. And, you know, the person goes, uh, and I think she was fixing to say, you mean that's true? But she didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that to the student. I will say, think how far back we have situations where, yes, people took care of, Bill, the government took care of a leader for whatever reason. And, you know, like... Uh, Sarah said, if we are aware of that, how do we make sure it doesn't continue to happen? Yeah, and Sarah said one of my favorite sayings that history is bound to repeat itself. And if you don't learn from it, you're just going to sit back and watch it repeat itself. And I think another thing, I think another thing with governments, you mentioned people say, well, I can't believe that a government would do that to its own leader. A government is just a group of people and people... People make bad decisions and they're bad people who do bad things all the same. So I always chuckle and say, oh, the government wouldn't do that to us. I'm like, it's just other people are just what the government is. So that's exactly well, and you can start saying, well, let's go ask the Native American how kind the government yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no list of bad things that governments have done throughout the history of not just the United States, but the world. So right. when people tell me, oh, the government wouldn't do that, I always I always chuckle a little bit to myself and think, man, that's uh, those are some, some nice rose-colored glasses you're taking a look at, at that throw. So. so to be honest with you, I'm less concerned about the people in the government who might do this and more concerned about the people who would hide their heads like ostriches and pretend it wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. If if you can't bring yourself to at least acknowledge that it may happen, you're you're just 
I don't know if you're as complicit as the people doing it, but you're not helping the matters, that's for sure. Well, I feel like you're going to be one of the first ones that's taking advantage of. <laughs> I hope not. Um, no, so, I don't mean you. I mean the person that... Oh, yes, yes. ...stand in the stand yes. is going to definitely be one of the ones that they target, you know? Yes, 100%. I would agree. So, so Sarah, I know I think you got kind of a, a hard out here in just a little bit time-wise. So I just kind of wanted to kind of bring this to a concluding point. One of the, the – the thing I found so far, again, just know I'm just about a third of the way through. You've pointed that there's a, a couple chapters later that may really get my mind going. But the the moment that I found the most shocking so far was the two autopsy theory. Um, that when Kennedy's body got to Bethesda Medical, that there were different things done to the body that made it appear like there were two. There was a, a, another autopsy done after they'd taken the body out of out of Dallas at Parkland. One of which being the uh, the cuts to the spinal cord. What right. was what was, uh, you guys can elaborate that on on that if you'd like as well. But my question was, what was the most shocking thing that you guys came across in your research? And and then after that, we'll get to kind of what your final final thoughts are as well. But what was the most shocking thing you guys came across? Well, with Jim Jenkins, it was the spinal cord. It was that after he was in there at the head of Kennedy during the autopsy, he then had to go upstairs at 2 in the morning and sign a confidentiality agreement that he wouldn't speak on this. During the autopsy, his job was to fill out the face sheet. And because it was military, he put in military date, military time. He filled it all out. He signed it. And the next time he saw that face sheet, it wasn't in military time. It was. It did not have his signature on it. And that was an eye-opener, but what really opened my eyes was Lieutenant Jay Good, who was there in Dealey Plaza that day. He was a member of an abort team. His commander was U.S. Marshal Robert I. Nash. They were at the triple underpass, and what Lieutenant Good told us was the shot did not come from the book depository, it came from the county records, and it came from the South Knoll. After the shot, they went to the South Knoll, and they found a spent bullet. They put it in, uh, Robert Nash put it in his pocket, took it to the FBI, and they told him that they didn't need it, that they already knew what had happened. Well, then it was like, how do we know that Good was really there? Well, then through our research, it uh, during the in interrogation of Oswald, Nash was there during that interrogation. We asked Good where he was since Nash was in that interrogation, and he told us that he had been flown to San Diego. See, he used to be in the Navy. And where is the Navy located for a 
uh, ONI for a board to try and determine what went wrong, maybe. <laughs> and that's where he was. He was being interrogated by ONI about that day in Dealey Plaza. He is also the same gentleman that told us that he knew both Oswald, Oswald, and he didn't like either of them. So he blew my mind. He and an assassin that we met with that scared the pejeezers out of us. Yeah, I can imagine meeting with an assassin probably isn't uh, high on your list of things that are, are fun to do, as much fun as probably a lot of this was. That would uh, that'd probably scare me very, very much. So, and just well, to... I will tell you, when we came home, I was driving down my alley, and I was looking to see who didn't have a fence fully closed. So if I needed escape out of my bedroom, I could go through my back gate, I could run across the alley, go through their front, go through their gated, uh, ungated mm -hmm. yard to the front. So then I went around on that street to see what bushes I could hide in. I slept in my tennis shoes for two weeks. <laughs> I was so scared. <laughs> I can't say I blame you. I, I probably would have done the same thing. And and with the the Lieutenant Good, uh, that is essentially kind of the grassy knoll theory, correct? Finding the bullet on that that knoll. Opposite side of the street. It's more of the side commerce for knowledge. Okay. You can't have an abort team there trying to prevent something if you don't know it's about to happen. Yep. And he told us there were three in the area that day. He was part of the Dealey Plaza because they knew it was going to happen that day. There was another abort team at the trademark and another one on the way back to Love Field. He did not know who were the members of the abort teams. He only knew his commander because it was on a need-to-know basis. Gotcha. Very interesting. And when we talk about the South Knoll, the gra it is across from the, the three streets of the Grassy Knoll. Okay. Because you have Elm, you have Main, and you have Commerce. And it's, close, and it's up the hill on Commerce on the other side of the triple overpass. Got it. So then I guess, I guess the kind of the final question here is, after all your research, after putting the book together, what were what were your your guys' final conclusions uh, on what did happen that day and in the following months and years of the cover up? What what do you guys think is is the conclusion to take away from all of this? Well, I think I think you'll have to read the book. There's too much to say in just you know a, a minute or two. But one thought that we keep telling every presentation. You can learn so much from what happened in the past, like we were speaking a minute ago, that hopefully we could prevent this from happening again. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, if it does happen again, are we going to accept another Warren report and just close our eyes and wait 50 years to try to get to the truth? Also, the people involved, there were 
say it's a three-part event. Everything is put in its own little compartment, and it's on a need-to-know basis, and maybe you were just there filming it. So there would be a historical video of it. Maybe you were just there as a bystander to knock into somebody who you thought was going to be a shooter. Maybe you were there to draw attention to yourself. People wouldn't notice where the shooter was. And everybody was put in their own little compartment, like on an Excel spreadsheet. And they didn't know what anyone else was doing that day. Very good. And and we can't say just one group was involved because everyone has their own specialty. And they were put into their own little compartment to do their job that day and not talk about it. And they didn't know the rest of the plan. Very and there are still people I believe like that today. Oh, I would, I would agree 100%. They're offered $50,000. This is all they know that they're supposed to do for their little job. They might do it and not know what the whole picture is about. Mm-hmm. And Jordan, in all, all fairness, there may have been some people who pay, helped pay for this assassination without realizing what they were doing. Uh, in the 60s, at that point, most of America wanted Fidel Castro out of our back door. Mm-hmm. We wanted rid of him. So you can imagine if people approached you that you thought were safe and said, could you put up ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000? We're going to get rid of Fidel Castro. And say, we need this off the books because it's going to buy ammunition and jeeps and whatever, but we want to get rid of Castro. You can imagine that the oil millionaires might very well have said, well, you better believe it. Now think how they would feel if year after year after year, Fidel Castro is still in power, Kennedy is dead, and none of your money came back. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't take long for you to figure out, I must have financed the wrong assassination. But would you dare admit you had given that money? Unlikely, I would think. <laughs> I mean, who, who would? There's no way you could take it off your taxes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it would be a matter of, oh my gosh, some of them may have been horrified to find out how they were duped. So you're telling Others me donations to assassinations are not tax deductible? Well, not tax deductible, no. But you can you can imagine that there may be some who honestly would have said, "I had no idea mm-hmm. that's what was going to happen." And now I certainly can't tell yeah. that I helped support any type of insurrection. I thought it was going to get rid of Castro. Yep. Twenty years later, there he still was. Yes. <laughs> Well, guys, thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, Your book, The Lone Star Speaks, Untold Texas Stories About the JFK Assassination. Where can people find your guys' book? Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million, 
And you can always go to your public library and ask them to order it, and you can just read it and return it and let someone else read it. Yep. Yeah, I got it on Amazon, so that, I mean, if it's on Amazon, I'm pretty sure everybody in the world can get it, so I can't recommend it highly enough. I I, I will finish this, I promise. I, I'm definitely going to get to it. And I appreciate you guys coming on so much. I, I thank you for your time, and best of luck in uh, any future endeavors thank you guys you have. So and if Thank you, you so much. if you write any more books, let me know. I'll be happy to, to jump in and read those as well. So thank you guys so much for your time. I appreciate it. We've got Jordan Spieth back in the winner's circle. Jordan Spieth wins the RBC Heritage at Harbortown Golf Links in Hilton Head. And this is Jordan Spieth, uh, his 13th win in his career on tour, has made over $50 million career. And he's also back into the official world golf rankings, top 10 for the first time since 2018. So kind of a, uh, I guess, out of nowhere win for Spieth, which is kind of tough to say with Spieth because he's such a, you know, such a popular figure and polarizing sometimes. But it just didn't feel like this was a tournament he was going to win or should win. He uh, he fires a Sunday 66, four rounds in the 60s from him this week, 69, 68, 68, 66. So pretty, pretty solid, nothing wrong with that. But I just felt like when he posted his number that he wasn't going to win. And I, I have a friend and who is, you know, becoming slightly f- famous on this show, Coach Slanovic, who's a, a known Jordan Spieth hater. Just the mere sighting of Jordan Spieth gets him triggered. And I was just kind of messing around with him. I sent him a text. I said, uh, when Spieth birdied 18, I said, hey, Spieth, post, backdoor win here. Just messing with him. I didn't think it was going to happen at all. But it turns out it did. He gets into a playoff with Patrick Cantlay, my guy who I've been pumping all year. He finally shows up and has a good week. He, He just couldn't get it done down the stretch. He he gets a kind of a rough break on eighteen. Hits a hits it into that front bunker and gets a fried egg. The, something was going on back in the fairway. They maybe couldn't figure out the wind, but Cantley follows Spieth right into that bunker. Spieth damn near makes it, but Cantley gets a rough break. Gets the fried egg. Just can't get it close enough. Misses the putt and and Spieth's your winner. But there's there's going to be some guys kicking themselves a little bit coming down the stretch. So there was a a seven way tie for T3. And you had uh, Shane Lowry, who looked like this was his tournament to lose, and and he chipped it into the water on the par 3. I forget the number there. Sepp Straka made a bogey on 18, which is really not much of, not not the most challenging hole at Harbortown. Wide open fairway. Harold Varner, I guess he had a weird penalty at some point. I missed that. I wasn't watching this intently. You know, I had... I had some family over for, for Easter, so I was kind of in and out, but not his best round, around a 70 from Varner. He also, like I said, Lowry had a, a 69, Seb Strzok a 68. When, when you had some guys go out there and really get it, I mean, Spieth with the 66. You had uh, JT Poston, he shot 64, and Cam Davis shot 63. So it looked like the scores were out there. You saw some low scores kind of early get put on the board. But yeah, and in the long run, Jordan Spieth, he's back. The dude loves Easter. Back-to-back wins on Easter for him. I don't know if you guys know this, but next year, next year, Easter falls on Masters Sunday. 
He going to make it three in a row? The PGA Tour's golden child just just resurrected himself every Easter Sunday for for a big W. That'd be a wild story. But yeah, so I and and I say this kind of came out of nowhere because I I mean Spieth missed the cut last week at the Masters. He's doing that funky like pre-shot routine that looks it just hurts hurts my soul when I watch it. But hey, he uh I mean he got through missing uh like an 18 inch putt on Saturday. He would have been kicking himself if Cantlay had been able to make birdie on 18 or anybody snipes him by one and he missed that 18 inch putt on Saturday night. His wife told him maybe don't miss those anymore. Take your time a little bit. So very, very, very good win for him. I mean, it was a good field. Like I said, Spieth, Cantlay, uh, Seb Strzok has been playing some good golf. Shane Lowry, Harold Varner III's kind of been popping up here and there. Tommy Fleetwood, some other good Cameron Tringali's a top 25 game, name. Uh, Joel Damon, Daniel Berger, Graham McDowell, Sun JM, Billy Horschel. Like, there are some good, good players playing this week. This is a tournament, you know, in the week after the Masters that can, you know, sometimes it doesn't get the best, the best field all the time, but... Yeah, Jordan Spieth with a good win. Like I said, kind of felt like it was out of nowhere, but a win's a win, right? It doesn't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. And I just want to say, just watching Harbortown, I think this every year, it looks like I could shoot 130 there. It looks like there's nowhere to hit it. I get claustrophobia just watching it on TV. And I drive the ball like I'm a blind four-year-old. So... I would shoot a million there. No doubt in my mind. But yeah. So Jordan Spieser winner. We got uh, we'll have more golf next week. I'm not exactly sure without looking what the uh, what's on the schedule, but I'll be watching. So that wraps up the golf. So like I said, not a whole lot going on in the world of sports. I felt like golf was the only thing that kind of needed standalone thing. So this is gonna be just kind of the, the the couple other things that I, I noticed over the weekend that were gonna get my attention. Flyers update, just a brutal week. Four losses. Tuesday, a 9-2 to loss to the Caps. I had that game on while I was doing some other stuff. And it's just like every time I look back, it's a, another goal, another goal. I'm watching another goal. Just brutal. Uh, 4-0 loss to the Rangers on Wednesday. And then this past weekend, back-to-back losses to the Buffalo Sabres. 4-3 on Saturday. I'm watching this game. They go up 2-0 in the first. And I text my buddy. My buddy T-Man, big Flyers fan, I said, how fast is this lead going to get blown? And sure as shit, they give up four goals in the second. Just unbelievable. And then, and then you know, like I said, the back-to-back loss, 5-3 to three loss to Buffalo on Sunday. So just uh, it's just a slog, slog to the finish with the, with the Flyers. Uh, the Packers, the Packers picked up Sammy Watkins, the receiver formerly with Kansas City, formerly with Buffalo. He also had a, a stint with the Rams uh, and just was last year in Baltimore. One-year, $4 million deal. If they think that this is going to be their solution at wide receiver and they're going to not go draft or try and get some other receivers, I'm going to lose my mind because this is not the answer. I mean, uh, he's only ever had one year over 1,000 recept- receiving yards, only three years, only fifty over 50 receptions. Has only played a full season one time. That was his first year back in 2014. So if he's just there to replace the the MVS role of going deep, I can get behind it. But if not, and like they're gonna 
their thoughts are they're going to use Sammy Watkins as a number one. Uh, I mean, I don't know what they're going to do for a number one. But they, they got a lot to do. Uh, so, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. I'm just, uh, it's it's digging at me because I'm worried. I'm worried now because I'm worried they're not going to do anything and their excuse is going to be we went out and we got Sammy Watkins in the offseason. That was the only receiver we could get. And then that's going to be the bullshit that we have to deal with. And then I'm going to stop. We got more football talk coming next week. I'm not going to burn myself out just yet. So there was a fight this weekend. Errol Spence Jr., uh, TKO win over Udonis Ugas in the 10th round of their fight. I guess Ugas's uh, orbital bone was actually broken in the fight. So that makes Errol Spence the holder of three of the four belts. This was a unification match at 147 pounds. The other belt holder is Terrence Crawford. They have famously not fought in, for all these years when this fight could have happened. I think dating as far back to 2018, you could have started to do this fight. Maybe not that far back, maybe 19. But it, it's time for this fight to happen. And I did not get this pay-per-view. I did not watch this pay-per-view because I told myself I'm not buying another pay-per-view from Terrence Crawford or Errol Spence Jr. when they're not fighting themselves, fighting each other. I just, I'm done. Like, it's bullshit. These two got to fight each other. We don't need another Manny Pacquiao, Floyd Mayweather thing. And they fight each other five years later from today. They fight up another weight class at 154 where they're not like, this is the time. And Spence, to his credit, called him out at the end of the fight. And Terrence Crawford said, let's get it done. And Crawford's no longer with top rank, so there's no more promotional bullshit that should stop this. This fight should happen next. And if it doesn't, these two are both clowns. And I hope to God none of the stupid sanctioning bodies in boxing get in the way because the Stanionis guy fought on the undercard. I did watch that fight. That was a, a just a bruising battle with Budiev, I think is how they say his name. But so he's technically the mandatory and took step and stepped aside to allow this Ugas fight to happen. Just take one more payday, Stanionis. Let them go to and have this fight for the undisputed champ at 147. I mean, it's for the undisputed champ at 147, no matter what, but let it happen. Sanctioning bodies don't ruin it. Promotional companies don't ruin it. Fighters don't ruin it. Just fight. It's a big fight. It's a great fight. It's a 50-50 fight. It'll be a very entertaining fight. It'll be a very eye-pleasing fight. These two are going to go at it and throw blows. Just don't fuck it up. Just don't. They're gonna, but just don't. So in two months, you'll hear me complaining that they're fighting bums. And then uh, Tyson Fury fights this weekend. Little uh, Saturday matinee. The the fight's over in London. So in here in the States, it's going to be Saturday afternoon. Tyson Fury's going to fight Dillian White. I don't see this one going the distance. I don't see it going the distance at all. I think Fury gets on Dillian White early and employs the same strategy he employed against Wilder and just realizes if you, he, he's so big that he can just take the fight to these people. Now, hey, maybe I'm wrong. He hasn't fought. I mean, he's known for letdowns. He, last, he let Otto Wallin take him 12 rounds. So, hey, Dillian White's better than Otto Wallin, but... I just don't see it. I think he he blasts him out in the first, before eight. I think this fight's over before eight rounds. So, that uh, like I said, that's all I had for other sports stuff. Not much going on. We'll be uh, we'll be talking the draft next week and uh, 
getting getting more back into the rest of the the sports world. I know there. I, I watched a little bit of NBA playoffs. I watched a couple of seconds. I just I don't know that I can do it, but we'll see. And the the NHL playoffs will be starting soon too. So yeah, so we'll be back to uh, to wrap up all that stuff next week, probably at least at least touch on some of it. So that wraps up the sports this week. What's up, everybody? It's MJ here with another edition of sixty seconds with MJ. Uh, on all walls house all walls it's good to good to hear from you can't wait for the pod um you know kind of lots of sports stuff going on nfl draft coming up i know uh we'll talk about that and you know golf is kind of in full swing now and all these different sports going to the playoffs i'm going to focus on the nba playoffs and just want to get your thoughts on something wally you know the whole kyrie irvin flipping the bird to the boston celtics fans you know where he played before and kind of jip them out of the thing so you know some history there but i just want to get your thoughts on the whole thing i know what charles barkley and Shaq said which i love they basically told him to shut up and you know just you're a professional athlete all this kind of stuff and you know i have my opinion but i was just kind of getting your thoughts on the the whole spiel uh can't wait to hear it talk to you later mj gone yeah so mj i i like this question and i had to look this up after the fact i didn't watch the game i'm I might. I had mentioned just before that I I was maybe going to check out some NBA because I hadn't been able to. I might keep an eye on this series. Yeah, I I and I get where Shaq and Charles are coming from. They're basically saying like, man up, deal with it. It's part of your job, and I tend to agree with that because you're getting paid a lot of money. Like, and I'm I'm gonna I was gonna save this till later too, but. It ties in with Baker Mayfield was talking about how he wants to go boo people at their cubicles when they're working because, you know, he's working and he's getting booed. So NBA, NFL, you know, all these pro athletes, they've got this – they're in a tough spot, man. Like, people come at you during games. I get it. They're yelling shit at you. A lot of it's probably vulgar. Some of it's probably racist. But – I, I tend to be of the fact that you're getting paid so much money that while you're on the court, if they're not coming down onto the court to like physically harass you, you kind of just got to deal with it. Out in the real world, no. like You don't got to deal with that. That's, that's bullshit. On the court, like if someone's telling you you suck, you're a pussy, you know, fuck you, I kind of think, Aline, like just deal with it. You're getting paid. Kyrie's getting what thirty plus million a year. Like that's an occupational hazard. And to circle to the Baker Mayfield point, the dude in the cubicle making fifty five grand a year didn't sign up to get booed. You did. And in Baker and Kyrie's, both of them are are very interesting athletes. They're very, you know. Uh, they elicit reactions from people, we should say. And while I don't disagree with them on everything or agree with them on everything, I don't really feel bad for them that they've they've got, you know, some of the stuff. I mean, Kyrie was like burning sage in Boston and kind of spurned them. So, like, you got to know they're going to come after you a little bit. And, and as far as, like, the flipping the bird thing, <laughs> as a uh, – I did one time flip off a crowd when I was playing high school basketball. I, w- I was pretty stupid at age, you know, 17 or 16, whatever I was. So uh, Kyrie should be a little more, you know, have a little more common sense to him. But I almost don't care. 
at the same token. Like, I know he's going to get fined. I know the league's got to do it. Like, the league can't have every player flipping double birds to, you know, to every stadium in America. But I just, it, it makes for a good story, man. Like, the villain. The villain makes the good guy the good guy. And again, this I'm stealing something I was going to talk about later. I watched the Stone Cold interview with Bubba Ray Dudley, and one of the things he said was, without Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker's just a whiny little punk on Tatooine. So, like, Kyrie's being the villain. He's on the nets with Kevin Durant. Like, that's the villain. Now the Celtics are, like, the good guys. Like, it makes for a good story. And I just don't care. The one where he's, like, scratching his head and, like, trying to hide it. Man up, Kyrie. If you're going to flip somebody off, just flip them off, you pussy. But, yeah, I, I don't really care in the long run. I, I think it makes for a good good story. It's something to talk about. I didn't know what happened. I can't believe I missed it. But, now, see, like, now I'm invested. Now I'm like, oh, I got to watch this. I want to see how the Boston crowd reacts to him. So, I... I'm like I'm fence sitting here. I, I think he should kind of man up and he shouldn't be doing it. But I'm not I'm not gonna throw a little hissy fit myself and be like, oh I can't believe he did that and crutch clutch my pearls and all that crap. But like he should have a little thicker skin, but man, I kinda like the story of it anyway. So there there's my thoughts on that one, and now I'm gonna have to keep an eye on the Celtics and the Nets series. Okay, passing thoughts time. And I just kind of stole, mentioned this in the, my answer to MJ's question. The uh, the Stone Cold interview, the Broken Skull Sessions with Bubba Ray Dudley. If you're a wrestling fan, I'd suggest checking that out. I thought it was a really good one. Really interesting, fun watch. So I think it's on Peacock. So if you got the Peacock and you're a WWE fan, check that one out. I watched some of that dirt track racing they were doing last night. That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. I like that. I, I've, I've come to realize I like the kind of gimmicky NASCAR stuff. I mean, I always tune in for the Daytona 500 every year, but they, they did that uh, super short track thing earlier this year. I thought that was kind of interesting, so I'm into it. I'm into it. I liked it. I had a good time watching it. Rain was kind of messing things up, so I didn't watch all of it, but I watched, I watched some. So, movie pet peeve moment for me right here. And this is going to lead into kind of the James Bond touch on thing. So, well, I, I watched Spectre, James Bond. Not the most recent James Bond movie, but the one before that. I think it was made in like 2015. Daniel Craig's still James Bond. Almost completed watching every James Bond ever made now. But man, Spectre was not good. Just not good, man. And it was like two and a half hours again. Like too long. Nothing happened for like the first hour. The, the very end, like the final action sequence was pretty good, as are most of the Daniel Craig James Bond. Like the action set pieces are very good, but like there's a lot of fluff that doesn't need to be there. And in this movie, and I'm sure it has happened in all the Bonds, but I hate when they like flip to main character, he's got a gun, Something bad's about to happen or like he's walking into a dangerous situation or he hears a noise and then he cocks the gun. Like pulls the slide and lets it back to load the gun. Like dude, come on. I know it makes for like good sim like 
oh, it's on now. But god damn, that annoys me. Like, that gun would be loaded. So, yeah. That, that's all. That's my that's my little rant about my movie pet peeves. And like I said, Spectre, not good. Not good. However, a movie that is good, Hunt for Red October was on this weekend. I was kind of in and out watching that. But god, do I love that movie. The first Jack Ryan movie. Looking forward to the Jack Ryan series coming back, too, while we're thinking about that. But the first Jack Ryan movie, Alec Baldwin... Sean Connery, just a, just an absolute classic. I already talked about Baker wants to boo people in their cubicle, but I'm going to kind of touch on it again. Baker, don't be a pussy. You're getting paid a lot of money to get booed on the field. If they're coming at you in, you know, your real life, I get it. But the dude paying $55,000 to crunch, getting paid $55,000 to crunch numbers, did not sign up to get booed. Get over it. What else? What else? Oh, the Carrier Dome. This one this one hurt me a little bit. This one hurt. The Carrier Dome. Syracuse, New York. Home of the Syracuse Orange. Football and basketball. It's got a new name. It's no longer the Carrier Dome. It is now the JMA Wireless Dome. That's a weird one. I've, I've realized now that I've reached the age and like the point in my life that I'm going to start referring to stadiums and buildings as their old names and being like, oh, it's still, you know, da, 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 to me back in my day. We, uh, and I'm kind of like, shit, did you really reach that point? Like y'all had that uncle or your dad or your grandpa. They're like, oh, why this is still the, whatchamacallit to me. And there's a couple of them now. So like the Carrier Dome, it's always going to be the Carrier Dome to me. I'm not going to call it the JMA Wireless Dome. And then out here in Wisconsin, Miller Field is now like American Family Field. It's like Miller Park, Miller Field. It's like, no, Miller Park was perfect for the Brewers. That's It's Miller Park to me. So, and then, you know, kids that are 10 years old, they'll always, it's always going to be AmFam Field to them. So just time to, I guess you got to just get over it. And now this one, and I'm, I should preface all of this with, I'm not an expert in hostile takeovers through stock buying and shit like that. But I just found this all very, very interesting. Elon Musk tried to buy Twitter late last week or over the weekend, whenever it was. And some of the reactions to it, I think, were very telling. I think, first off, the, the best reaction to it was Tom Brady said, if you buy this... Can you just delete my combine pick from all history? I thought that was pretty funny. But and I hope and I hope Tom Brady is joking. Like I'm sure he is cuz like he can't just delete the pick. But like that picture is the most redeeming quality about Tom Brady ever. Like you look at that picture and you're like, "Man, I look like that." Like, that's what I look like, is what you kind of think to yourself. Now, right now, I don't. I've got a few extra pounds on. I'm kind of jiggling around a little bit extra. But there's been times in my life where I've looked better than he looked in that picture. Now, again, not saying I'm any sort of the athlete that he is. And the dude is arguably the best team sport athlete of all time. But like I said, there are legitimate times in my life where I have looked better physically than he did in that picture. 
I probably, I still don't think I probably would have performed any better, but I, hey, I looked better. But, like, that's the thing. It's like, oh, damn, Tom Brady, he's one of us. He runs a slow 40. He looks like that. I mean, he's obviously transformed himself, but it's kind of like the thing in life. It's like, man, that's, that's the image you always think of when you think of Tom. I always think of that. That that uh, that picture at the combine. So yeah, so that was the funny one. The concerning thing in the reaction to Elon trying to buy Twitter were some of the other people. There was a guy, Max Boo. I don't even know who this guy is, but he said his tweet said, "I am frightened by the impact on society and politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter." He seems to believe that on social media, anything goes. For democracy to survive, we need more content moderation, not less. Interesting take that democracy in the world is better served by more censorship. I can't get behind that idea. I don't know what people in the world, in the history of the world, have ever been the good guys that have wanted more censorship. Censorship is not good. And every country in the world has done it. Every single one of them. And it happens a lot in war. It's it's one of the reasons why the Spanish flu is called the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu in all likelihood they think started in America. But because of wartime censorship we didn't talk about it. And one of the only places not at war during that period of time was Spain. So it talked about it in their press and now it's forever known as the Spanish flu. So I'm not into the idea that Spencer, that more censorship is good. So that one was weird. Another one. And this guy. This guy sucks. Fuck this guy. This David Levitt he said, he tweeted, If Elon Musk successfully purchased Twitter, it could result in World War III and the destruction of our planet. First of all, what a fucking leap that is. Second of all, I saw this dude... And I'm like, hmm, why does that name and that face look so familiar? So I looked him up. I said, is this who I think it is? And sure as shit, it was. It was this guy who he went to Target once and wanted to get a, a toothbrush for one cent because it had obviously been mislabeled for one cent. And the the person working the, the lane was like, no, we, we can't do that. Like, it's not worth one cent. Like, it's not how it works. And he, like, started tweeting out and was, like, taking pictures of, like, the, the cashier at Target and, like, putting her on blast and, like, acting like he was the good guy. It's like, you no, know, you're a douchebag. And I used to work at Target back in the day, and they told us. If a customer comes through, it's not customers, it's a guest at Target. You're a guest. So if a guest comes through and is like, hey, you know, that thing rang up at $25, but it was advertised for $20, you're like, yep, no problem, we'll change it. They, they tell you, at least the Target I was worked at and was trained at, they said, if, again, a guest, because they like to treat their customers with respect, it's an experience going to Target. <laughs> but they're like, yeah, just don't argue with them change it if it's reasonable if someone comes up with a 60 inch tv and they're like hey this was advertised for 20 dollars," you're like oh i can't do that so that was the scenario and this douchebag what's his name again david 
David Levitt, L-E-A-V-I-T-T, was like blasting this Target employee and like claiming how he was in the right and he was being wronged. So any take from this asshole is just, should just be discounted right away. But saying that Elon Musk buying Twitter is going to make force World War III, that's fucking wild. So, hey, David Levitt, fuck you. Also, and, and staying on the same thing, I think Vanguard has since bought their portion of, of Twitter back up. The previous highest control, the person who had held the most stake in Twitter was a Saudi prince. I think BlackRock is very involved in the ownership of Twitter, and they've done this thing that's like the poison pill plan where they can, if Elon Musk starts buying more of it, they can dilute shares and stuff like that. And by the way, his $43 billion was over current stock prices. It wasn't at the highest, but I think it was like an 18%. And I just started putting it all together. I'm like, so it's Elon Musk versus Vanguard, BlackRock, Saudi Arabia. Like that's the side that these people are going to cling to. Vanguard, BlackRock, and Saudi Arabia. Vanguard, BlackRock, and Saudi Arabia. Interesting. I, I'm, I don't like to be the moral police because I like to say if there's enough money, I'd probably do just about anything. But if you're siding with Vanguard, BlackRock, and Saudi Arabia, and look up Vanguard and BlackRock. I mean, they're just – you'll see. They're not, they're not there for anything but straight cash, homie. And I don't blame them for it. But – you're not the good guy. Like, you don't have the moral high ground. And I, I think it just, it, it made very clear. And there was a, there was also a, a clip of some news when they're like, oh, Elon wants to try and tell people what to think. And they're like, it's our job to tell the people what to think. It's like the masks come off really quick when these people get threatened. Like, they're into censorship. They're into telling you what to do. And it's not good. I don't know that Elon buying Twitter makes a whole hell of a lot of difference in the world. I don't know if it's a good thing. But the people that are claiming that they're right and that more censorship and they want to, you know, keep free speech dialed back, they aren't the fucking good people. I know that for sure. And this whole situation showed that very clearly. So that's my thoughts on the Twitter situation. And the last thing here was uh, I've been watching Winning Time, the... The, the L.A. Lakers show about the, the Lakers dynasty when Jerry Buss bought the team back in 1979. Fun show. It's on HBO Max. Really good show. John C. Riley as Jerry Buss is, is really fun. A lot of good names in it. Jason uh, Jason Segal plays Paul Westhead. Jason Clark plays Jerry West. The guys who play, like the basketball players, like the guy who plays Magic Johnson, the guy who plays Kareem, they did a great job picking out people who look like them. It's just a, it, it's a fun show, man. Like I, I talked last time about mayor of Kingstown and it's dark and it's gritty and it's rough and it's hard. Like this show is the complete opposite. Like you're going to sit down, you're going to have fun. It's HBO. So you're going to get the tits and the socks in it too. So just know that's coming, but it's fun, man. And, and I, I like basketball and I've enjoyed learning, you know, I, I know it's all fictionalized, but it's kind of fun to learn about. You know, one of the most recent episodes, and spoiler alert, 
I mean, this has all happened already, so not that much of a spoiler, but Magic Johnson is, like, negotiating for a shoe contract, and he turns down an offer to take stock in Nike and takes $100,000 from Converse. You know, if I'm in that situation, I can't say I do anything different. Hundred grand versus stock of some company that's never, you know, hasn't done anything yet. But I think they said the stock that he could have taken would have been worth something like five billion dollars today or something like that, which is just mind blowing. But you know, they make it seem like they wanted to put his name, like make him his own shoe, basically. Like Phil Knight was like, "We're going to do the Michael Jordan theory with you," and that Michael Jordan was like his backup plan. So just fun show. I've enjoyed it. And, and I also saw a tweet about Larry Bird, which was funny, you know, kind of kind of going along with it. I think it was like, you know, everyone acts like Larry Bird couldn't cut it in today's NBA because he wasn't athletic. And they're like, but Nikolai Jokic, I think he's the Joker, right? Yeah, I think they call him the Joker. And, you know, Luka Doncic aren't the most athletic people in the world, and they're ripping it up. So I think uh, the great Larry Bird would have done all right in just about any era. So... Yeah, so that's all my thoughts this week. Let's get this thing wrapped up. Closing time, everybody. Thank you again, everyone, for, for coming back and another show. Really appreciate all you guys. We will be back next week. Next week, going to have a couple of guests on to talk about the NFL draft, as long as everything works out schedule-wise. But should have two guests next week to talk about the NFL draft. You know one of them, and you'll be introduced to a second. So NFL Draft Talk next week. We'll cover the Tyson Fury fight, the PGA Tours at uh, in Mexico at the Mexico Championship. I'm going to keep my eye on that uh, that Celtics and Nets series now. I have the wrap-up. Uh, the, the flyer season's coming to an end, so we'll be talking, talking all that. I want to thank uh, KW, Zachary, and Sarah Peterson so much. I really enjoyed our talk. Guys, check that book out. It's a fun book. It's an easy read. It's long, but it's got a lot of great information. I really suggest that. I think they say you can get it anywhere books are, are sold. Amazon is where I got it. Barnes & Noble, all those places. I'd suggest it. Go get it. So thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone. I'll look forward to seeing you all back here next week again, hopefully. Until then, peace.